Thank you for choosing the podcast of East Haven Baptist Church in Brookhaven, Mississippi. For more information on the ministries of East Haven and to access videos and sermon notes from our services, visit www.easthaven.net. We will, in fact, praise His name forever. That is the ultimate end of the heart of God in redeeming man, that we would respond in worship and praise forever. For God so loved us, the world, that he gave his only, his only begotten, as we read in the King James, his one and only son, that whoever, and that's whoever, believes in him, would not perish, but have everlasting life. Well, Merry Christmas, y'all. That was pretty good. We're moving along, East Haven. You guys have come a long way in four months. I'm so proud of you. Merry Christmas, y'all. Merry Christmas. Okay, now that felt like Merry Christmas to me. That, that was awesome. Uh, we're just delighted to be here. I had this moment uh, today. We, we tend to come when Kathy's with me. She leads in worship at Pine Lake some Sundays. But when she's with me, we tend to arrive between 9.30 and 10.00. This morning we arrived at 10 and there was like two and a half cars in the parking lot. And it dawned on me there was no Sunday school. For just a moment I thought, it's Monday, I have missed Christmas. I wasn't sure what had happened exactly. And then I'm just delighted to see you here this morning. Uh, I am still concerned, East Haven. I mean, I don't want to put this on you at the beginning of a Christmas message, but I'm still concerned about these four rows right here. I, I really don't understand this. This is awesome. There is room for me literally to park our Honda Pilot right here on a Sunday morning. It is so good to see you, and uh, it is great to be together. And there is no more precious time than singing songs of adoration and worship to the God who sees us and knows us and loves us, who brings love and joy and peace into our life. It's the substance, the essence of the Christmas story. I'm going to let you in behind the curtain again. Uh, Last week, you know, I I used an outline in the sense of three words from Chuck Swindoll. And and I said, really, there are very few, if you were here, you may remember this, but there are very few original, original ideas. Uh, I've been known as kind of an adaptive creative or creative at some point in my life. I like to think that I'm kind of creative, and I might have had three and a half original thoughts as a pastor in the last 40 years, because much that we speak has been spoken in virtually every language uh, coming out of the biblical text, outlines or, or numerous commentaries are deep, so sometimes we might gain in our study a concept or an idea for a message. So last week, what I said was uh, that I have a mentor friend who said, when you use somebody's outline or use somebody's thoughts, you reference them, but we don't want to plagiarize. So the first time you say, as Chuck Swindoll uh, said and brought these three points to bear, like I did last week, the next time you do it, you say, it's often been said. And the third time you do it, you say, as I often say, and you kind of own it as you go along. Today, I want to let you into kind of the, the back room of what I know pastors are doing today. It's Christmas morning, 
And on Christmas and Easter, and this is not a compliment to us as pastors, but many pastors will struggle with the thought, they'll struggle with the thought, what can I do to make the Christmas story interesting? Because everybody knows it. It's like we visit it all the time and we read the Christmas story. We read the Luke 2 story. We have a manger scene or a, uh, a nativity scene at home and we do that in our yard and it's in the culture. And How do I make it interesting? And I want to tell you that that's not a good thought because there really is no more incredible story in the universe than the Christmas story than the reality of the incarnation of a God who is, in fact, beyond our scope. Because we can't understand him, but he's come near. When you see Jesus, you've seen God the Father. When he's come to us and visited us as a man, that is the ultimate story in eternity. And what I'm telling you is when I might fight the temptation to say, how can I be fascinatingly clever or creative and make the Christmas story interesting? I have clearly missed the story of Christmas. Because there is no more amazing story than the reality of a transcendent God coming in the flesh incarnate that we could know God. That's the story. There are a lot of other stories that circulate at Christmas. We've talked about those, and I've told you, even today, when you see the other stories and the myth and the cartoons and the rest, just be encouraged that even the culture wants on the bandwagon of the reality of the incarnation. And it's, it's easy just to have fun with that. Uh, I don't know where the Grinch came from, but he's all over my neighborhood. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I don't think the Grinch is a biblical character, best I know, but it reminds me that the culture is interested in this concept of God becoming man. There are a lot of those kind of stories, like, as a, for instance, Jim Johnston. Where are you, Jim? Jim, stand up. Jim and I go back about 45 years, and Jim, I just want you to know I really appreciate you being here this morning after your long, long night of delivering presents all over the world. You're welcome. I love Jim Johnston. Sometimes you just have to take a shot. You know what I mean, Michelle? I mean, it's Jim for crying out loud. Uh, I graduated from college, took a Christian band on the road. I talked about it at some point months ago. Jim was our sound man and and driver and manager in so many ways. Jim was awesome, and it's been fun reconnecting uh, in these years, and uh, especially in this time at East Haven. And a uh, great job last night, by the way, Jim. <laughs> we know who you are. Um, there are a lot of stories in the culture, from the Grinch to the big guy, that attend the Christmas season, but the greatest story of all is the truest story of all, and that is the God who is who's beyond our reach and our thoughts has come near. And that's the story. And we stop and we think about that, we ought to be blown away. If you're not in awe of the God who is, you've missed the story. Over the years, I've taught multiple times groups of people, many times young adults or college students. I, I found a note the other day from the old Miss BSU 
And uh, for some of you who are cynics, yes, there are lots of Christians on the campus at Ole Miss. But I found this letter, and it was talking to me about teaching uh, about the nature of God. And, and sometimes over the years, I've taught a really simple outline just to get our hands around the fact that God has demonstrated through his word, his character in a way that we can understand him who we couldn't possibly understand outside of him revealing himself to us. And in the sense of attributes of God or characteristics of God, I used some little handles over the years, like he is omniscient. He knows it. Whatever it is, he knows it. In the past, now, in the future, he knows it because he's not limited by time or space. He's an omniscient, omni, all science God. He knows it. He's omnipotent. He, he can do it. Whatever it is, God is all powerful. He's the creator. All things the Bible says are held together by him and through him. He can do it. He's immutable. That's a multi syllable word for he's unchanging. He absolutely remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's a holy God and we're called to be holy as he is holy. And when Isaiah saw him, his cry was holy, holy, holy. And the picture revelation is a response of God's people in eternity responding to the holiness of God. He's gracious He is the Jesus who brings both truth and grace. We defined grace a long time ago here, of course. But I had a a pass at it as I arrived and talked about grace being receiving something we don't deserve. And he is the God not only of truth, but of grace. He's merciful. He sets aside our punishment for our sins and provides a way of escape. He's eternal. He exists in all directions throughout eternity. He's beyond our understanding of time. He is God, the Lord of the universe, and yet God has made himself known to us in the most simple of ways by the birth of his son, our Savior, who took on human form not considering equality with God or the power of God in the moment a thing to be held on to, but gave it up and became as a baby on our behalf, obedient to the Father, even obedient to the point of death on a cross. Over the last few weeks, we've talked about prophecy. He gave us clues. He gave us prophetic words. He gave us insights and shadowing of what was to be throughout the history of his people in what we understand as the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. As he said, I'll be your God, you be my people, and I will send a deliverer, a savior to you, a Messiah to you. And if you weren't here just a few weeks ago, there are at least 60 references that are understood by the Jews, God's chosen people, to be pictures of the Messiah. And the probability of all of those things coalescing in one place and one person at one time, astronomically small. We talked about the numbers. It's unbelievable, the probability. It's just a number beyond comprehension. But God gives us foreshadowings and prophecies that bring us to him. 
Last week we talked about not only being wrapped in as the metaphor of a gift, wrapped in prophecy, but wrapped in history that just at the right time, Galatians 4.4, 4, at just the right time in the fullness of time, Jesus came. It was a time when there was a common language in what would be known as Western civilization in the promised land. There was a time when there were common roads and, and common government for the spread of the gospel. As soon as that had been accomplished, God saw in his timing, in his sovereignty, he would express his love in the form of his son Jesus at just the right time. And then wrapped in mystery that we would see the very logos or logo of God at just the right time. We can see Jesus who said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Today, I want to invite you. I trust you may have picked one of these orders of service up as you came in. If not, I understand they'll be on the screen as well. And we're going to read together aloud an Old Testament passage and the Luke 2 Christmas story. I've discovered in my life that what has been known to be true about teaching is also true about preaching. Those of us who study to teach, to present, tend to absorb more than I will when I'm sitting in a seat listening. It's an active expression of learning. And I think there's an elevation to God's word when we read God's word together. When I speak the words out loud, there is something that happens. I hear myself speaking. I'm not only reading, but I'm speaking out loud. And educators and researchers will tell you, it's a much more effective way of learning and remembering and touching the truth that we're trying to absorb into our minds and our hearts. So today, in honor of God's word, elevating the truth of his word, I'm going to ask you to stand and we're going to read this passage from Isaiah, this ninth chapter, these two verses that we've read before that are part of the prophecies that foreshadow, foretell the coming of the Messiah. And then I'll lead us through that, and then I'll lead us to move into Luke 2 as we read the Christmas story. Would you read with me? And as we, as we move here, we'll stay ahead of this so we can read together out loud, boldly, if you will. Let's read. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And then the Christmas story found in Luke 2, the first 20 verses. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee 
to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what has been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. You may be seated. This birth of Jesus had been thought about, prophesied about, planned for, considered, theologically debated for 900 years. And here are the moments when the baby arrives and the people in the biblical record that we see and speak about responding most often are two interesting groups. How many of you have a nativity scene a manger, a, a, a front yard display or a display somewhere in your house. How many of you have one of those? Around that manger scene, it's kind of interesting because it's really out of the biblical order, but many times in a manger scene, who's present? Shepherds and who? Uh, they weren't there at the same time. Now, they're in your living room at the same time, which I think is awesome. Uh, what kind of animals are there? Sheep. Usually a camel or a donkey, you'll see all these animals. 
I'm not sure who was actually hanging out at the manger. I love these manger scenes, these creches, these nativity scenes. They kind of weave the Christmas story together. As a matter of fact, just as an aside, just as a thought, in our nativity scene that I see most often, it's right inside the door. It's on a uh, what am I trying to say? A sofa table behind our sofa as we come in there, and I look at it. And it's really it's an attractive little scene, and there are wise men who may have been quite a while arriving, and they're shepherds, and there's a star to represent the star that led to Jesus. But there's a, a sheep there, and there's a donkey there, and when we think about that, it's those are almost foreshadowings. Jesus, part of the prophecy, found a donkey prepared for him going into Jerusalem. That was a piece of the prophecy. And the sheep, that lamb, is a picture in Scripture of this one and perfect lamb who is Jesus. In John, the first chapter, John doesn't do the Christmas story the way Luke does the Christmas story. Uh, And it's part of God's wisdom and design in the four what we call gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that we would see the story from the same story from different perspectives and different understandings. It's that incredible tension that God brings where he's telling the story and he's giving, even through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this particular perspective. But John writes in the first chapter of the book of John, the gospel of John. And he says this, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him. And we're talking about John the Baptist who is foretelling and announcing the birth of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus. And John looks at him and says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Those little manger scenes, even though they're not biblically, historically accurate, all of those gatherings are really pieces of the historical biblical record about those who responded to Jesus. It's interesting. Here are the shepherds who are virtually non-entities. I mean, we know they have value because they're God-created They're loved by God and seen by God, but these were not important people in the time. They were about as low on the social totem pole as they could be. In the social order, they were loners. They hung out with sheep. They weren't merchants in the town. They weren't politicians. They weren't trained theologians. They were simple Bedouin shepherds. But God reveals this king, the Lord of the universe, to them. And then the wise men. Now, we tend to think the wise men are how many guys? Three. There's, we don't know that. Uh, there are three gifts listed. Those gifts are symbolic. There's, there's truth behind those three gifts. But actually, these wise men could have been a delegation from Persia or some other place who had known the star and studied these scriptures to understand God's chosen people because the stories of God's faithfulness and the demonstration of his power and presence had permeated that part of the world. 
So in the story, it's fascinating that these wise men, astrologers, these these people who were in court with a ruler, found through the stars the message of the birth of the Lord of the universe and came to bring gifts. And it's gold, traditionally a gift that responds uh, in uh, treasure to a king or to royalty. And frankincense and myrrh, three really unique gifts. Frankincense being an incense that was often used in worship. It had a spiritual connotation. It certainly had an incense uh, offering connotation in Scripture. Then the interesting gift of myrrh, which was used as a fragrance, but was most often used in the preparation of a dead body. And those were their gifts. So you've got a foreign delegation and some shepherds on the side of the hill. You've got a girl who might have been 14 or 15 who knew she had not been with a man who is giving birth. You've got her husband who is, I'm sure Joseph was faithful and obviously from Scripture God has honored him, but uh, he's got to have woken up at 4 o'clock in the morning once or twice on the trip and said, what is going on here? Have you thought about Mary's mother or her dad? I'd like to have heard that conversation. So you're telling me the Lord of the universe, the transcendent God, makes a pretty amazing entry into the world. And beyond that, moving beyond this visible expression of the invisible God who comes in humble nature as a baby is the fact that this baby came to live and to die. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We celebrate Christmas because the baby Jesus came, but we celebrate and worship the baby Jesus because he is in fact the savior of the world. And he saved the world by stepping in to pay for your sin and for mine. And the only reasonable response is to worship. In the gospel, according to Matthew, do you remember those wise men, that delegation from a Middle Eastern country who showed up to see this king, this born king, their response was to bow and worship. The only reasonable response. Today we're here to adore him, to love him, to think about him, to be aware of and ask him to help us practice his very presence by the Holy Spirit of God in our lives. That's why we're here. And we're going to do that this morning by remembering not just his birth, but his mission and his death and his resurrection and his ascension. Jesus gave a model for us to remember him. Memory is so important. Uh, Revisiting truth is so important. Uh, 
It seals truth. It puts truth in our heart in a way that transcends just the everyday facts of living. But it is a place hidden in our heart that reminds us of whose we are. And one of the ways that we do that by God's design is when we take part in the Lord's Supper. I want to speak about the Lord's Supper for for just a moment for you because I'm aware that it's Christmas. And today you may be here because you're together with family or maybe there was a specific invitation or maybe this is one of the days that you make sure that you're in God's house worshiping together. But maybe though you've participated or seen the Lord's Supper, you don't fully understand what's, what's going on. Yesterday, we had the privilege of attending a Christmas Eve service. The Lord's Supper was observed there. Kathy was helping lead worship. I'm sitting with her brother. Her brother is 59 years old, grew up in church, has made a long string of, of bad or interesting decisions. And for the last two or three years, we've invested daily with David, and David sat next to me. And the Lord's Supper was an opportunity to hear once again the truth of the gospel in David's life. And today, I'm trusting, believing, and praying that it's an opportunity to hear the truth of the gospel in your life as well. See, at just the right time, Jesus came. And he came on a mission to die as a substitutionary death, being a substitute for you and me that we would have life with Christ. And we have life when we believe. We believe in him. We trust in him. We become Christ believers. Therefore, we become Christ followers. And our heart is turned and made new. If any man, the Bible says, is in Christ, old things have passed away. All things have become new. That's the essence of the gospel. So this morning, the Lord's Supper is really about remembering for those who've trusted Christ. So I want to extend a moment of of encouragement and invitation to you that if you've never trusted Christ, I can't think of a better time than right this minute. To say, Lord Jesus, thank you for loving me and seeing me. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for taking my place on the cross. Paying for my sins that I can have a relationship with you. And then perhaps in words that you form in your heart by the work of the Spirit, you could say, and God, I trust you and love you and would follow you. The Lord's Supper is for believers who gather Jesus had this supper time with, with his disciples just prior to going to the cross. They were observing the Passover. When Paul writes to the church at Corinth, there's a lot of confusion about the Lord's Supper. It's early in the life of the, the church, and they're figuring this out, and it's gone from Passover feast to a celebration, and it looks like Paul is trying to bring them into alignment about what it means. And he describes that night with Jesus this way. He basically says, on the night that Jesus was betrayed the Last Supper as we know it, the Passover. 
Jesus does two things. He takes the bread and he takes the wine, the juice of the vine. He says, the bread is my body broken for you. The vine is my blood in the new covenant. The new covenant is that we can have a relationship with God through Christ. We experience salvation through Jesus. This morning, you're invited to celebrate, to observe the Lord's Supper. And I think this is a most appropriate way to observe this ordinance in the church. This morning, there will be deacons at four tables. Each of the tables has both bread, a small piece of of unleavened bread, and a juice of the vine. Each table will have those and a deacon, and they will share with you Scripture, and then you will partake of both the bread and the juice. Now, how will we do this? We're going to have the privilege of sitting for a few moments and contemplating what it means to trust Christ with our life. We have the privilege to sit for a few moments and meditate on the truth of God's Word, that He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We have the privilege for a few moments to thank Him for who He is and to worship Him for who He is and what He has done. We have those privileges in these moments together as a congregation. And then, as you have leading or freedom, you are invited to just simply stand, you Maybe a spouse, if you're with a spouse, or your entire family, or a friend group, or by yourself. As you're prepared and ready, we're going to ask you to approach one of these tables, and these deacons will walk through Scripture and invite you to participate in the taking of the bread and the juice. So to be clear, I'm going to pray. We're going to simply sit in the presence of the Lord for a few moments. And as God gives you freedom and leadership, you'll stand, you, by yourself, with a spouse or a friend or your family, and you'll come to the table and you'll celebrate and observe the Lord's Supper in this place. May I pray for us? Would you bow your heads? Can we just be still? Father, we're so grateful that you see us and you know us and you love us, that you're our creator. Father, even as I say the word Father, I'm grateful that you've adopted us into your family and that we're sons and daughters of yours. And God, I know we've been adopted at an incredibly great price, a perfect savior has gone to an ugly cross for us. We live in the hope of the resurrection of Christ, the truth of his resurrection and the hope that it brings us, that as he was resurrected, we will be as well. We live in and hope in the truth of your word that you so loved this world, that's us, God that you gave Jesus, that we would believe and have everlasting life. We're thankful for the opportunity this morning to celebrate, to observe, to consider the death of Christ on our behalf. 
And Father, it is my prayer for these men and women, these boys and girls in this room, that we would remember and that we would live our lives in accordance to the remembering of the sacrifice of Jesus. Heavenly Father, on this Christmas day, we know that the baby Jesus was born to live and to die on our behalf. Soberly, we take this moment of observing the Lord's Supper in a way that would honor you. Give us leadership, freedom, boldness, confidence in the hope that we find in Jesus in these moments. For we pray together in the name of Jesus himself. Amen and amen. You're invited to simply consider, to meditate, to pray. And as you feel led, you come to these tables and these gentlemen will serve you as we observe the Lord's Supper together. Well, we've had church this morning. At the, the time of singing, I trust the time of elevating the truth of God's word and then remembering together the sacrifice of Jesus uh, could not be any more profound or pertinent to Christmas. I began with Merry Christmas because it is the traditional greeting in our country. If you've been across the Atlantic, you might get a happy Christmas. That never feels just right to me. Merry Christmas is a great, joyful greeting, but I want you to know today that my prayer for you and the desire for my heart, honestly, is not just merriment or joyfulness in the sense of exuberance, but it's peace and love and joy and the hope that we find in Jesus. So I pray today while there is Mary in your Christmas, that beneath all of that there is a foundation of life in Jesus that transcends every bit of your life. The foundation of our hope in Christ. Robert and Michelle, worship team, thank you for leading us so well this morning. And we're going to go out. Robert's going to lead us. Uh, it is such a privilege to know you, to serve you, to be with you in this season. And I look forward to the days ahead as the Lord allows, as the body that is East Haven Baptist Church gathers together. Thank you for the encouragement that you bring, not simply to me, but to each other by gathering together today in worship.